little disclaimer, though, before we start. Uh, I'm not, uh, we're going to look at O Holy Night today and a little bit of commentary on Luke 4, which I'll get to. But um, just to disclaimer this a little bit, th- there is, like with any kind of art, an inherent sense of subjectivity uh, to it and uh, to, to song, song lyrics like this as well. So my goal is not to necessarily understand the song's meaning by way of the author's intention, uh, but rather through the Bible's lens. And I, I think they align anyway, but if you know a little about the history of this song, you might know what I'm referring to. Um, there, there's some things we just don't know, honestly, about the author and uh, exactly where he was spiritually and uh, what he meant by certain things. But, um, but in fact, God is in control, <laughs> like a lot of times he is with art. And um, I've said to you guys before, too, sometimes with preaching, like I'll, I'll say something, you know, for whatever, and I'll just stand up here and say something for a while, and I'll get down and someone will say, oh, that was meaningful when you said that it pointed me to christ this way and i'll listen to them for a minute and i'll say i don't think i really said that <laughs> you know <laughs> like i don't think i really or maybe i said it, but i didn't mean it that way but that's really good i'm glad that god helped you to get that because i didn't mean that at all but that's really good you should take that home um so it's kind of the same way sometimes with art you know like there's this intention the author has or whoever has but god intends something even um more maximized or something better with it and so anyway we're gonna we're gonna go towards the uh, the latter but so today is O Holy Night, and next week we'll do another one before some open mic stuff in January. we got a few things planned, I'll let you know about as the weeks progress here. Um, the lyrics we're going to focus on, though, at least to start with, I'll mention some other ones, and we'll uh, actually close singing the song one more time uh, as well. We just sang it, but we'll sing it one more time. The lyrics, though, we're going to focus on and start with are, Chains shall he break for, this, for or because the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. I'm going to read from Luke 4 here in the New Testament as a companion text here to that, and we'll, we'll dive in. Luke 4, 16 and 19. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He's in Galilee. It's where he, where he grew as a boy up to this point. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So pulling from the song lyrics and then into this passage, you can see the idea of uh, liberation and freedom for the captives come out in a couple of places. Um, And so basically what Jesus is doing here is he's given a scroll of an Old Testament text from Isaiah 62. He reads it, and he says, right after this, we're not reading that section, but he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. To get really direct, this is about Christ. And so he links the two, and he's kind of describing his his ministry. But the pieces I want to look at and focus on are when he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, and then lower, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and then in 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the Old Testament year of Jubilee, which every 50th year for the Israelites, they uh, were to celebrate this uh, festival, and part of the festival, it's kind of like a Sabbath year of rest, basically, but part of the festival included the release of servants and slaves. So when you think Jubilee, think, think that. Jesus is saying, I'm the true Jubilee here, I am the true liberator I have come to release the, uh, the, the captives. So the big question I want to pose, and we'll answer this today throughout uh, the rest of our time, is 
what are these two things referring to? The, the song lyrics and Jesus himself, what are they referring to when they talk about releasing prisoners? Because that, that's literally what he's saying. I, I've come to release prisoners. I've come to release the captives. I've come for the sake of liberation. He says that a couple of ways uh, per Isaiah 62 on the scroll. So what are they referring to when they talk about releasing prisoners? Because here's the issue. Jesus never sets prisoners free in his earthly ministry. Jesus never does this. He never sets earthly prisoners free. In fact, um, there's one point in his ministry where John the Baptist, if you don't know who he is, he was kind of this final Old Testament prophet who baptized Jesus and kind of pointed to him in a very direct way, a forerunner of Christ, a preparer of the way, the Bible says, and a ministry friend of Jesus. There's this moment where John the Baptist is actually put into prison unjustly. He's innocent, unjustly. Jesus hears about it, but instead of freeing him, sends word to him that he is, in fact, the Christ, because John starts to doubt. So the significance of this is really important, and, and, and it can't be missed. In Luke 4, Jesus says, says he came to liberate. John the Baptist gets imprisoned unjustly. Jesus hears about it, but doesn't free him. And we actually know John never goes free, but dies in captivity. He's beheaded. So it raises serious questions, right? Theological ones, especially if we're exposed to this for the first time. We're just reading this kind of cover to cover. At this point, we might, we might ask questions like, is, was Jesus a liar? Was Jesus impotent? Powerless? Unable? Add to this the idea of, uh, in his name, all oppression will cease from the song. You know, and, and in some ways, this does happen physically in Jesus' ministry. I'll allude to a couple of these things as we go. But all oppression? Remember that Jesus is ministering in the first century. It's, it's a time when the people of Israel were um, under Roman rule. The Roman Empire had annexed their land uh, earlier, uh, centuries prior. They set up their own governors over it and their centurions to police it. But Jesus did not cease that oppression though many expected him to, even uh, some of his disciples. He subverted that oppression, but did not cease it. It's clear that he did not come to overthrow Roman oppression in, uh, in the land and, and just kind of personally as well, and in that way to cease oppression. He came for something much better. It's actually fascinating. He doesn't really talk about this that much. We kinda, when I say subvert, I mean he'll kind of talk about things, like he, he talks to Pilate before his death, who's a Roman governor, he talks about taxes, paying taxes and things like that, so he'll talk to things like that, but he never really addresses in any way, it's, it's almost like he could have said I, very clearly, I didn't come for that, but he also didn't say that, he just says, here's really who I am, you know, and he calls people to himself, and gets very clear, and we'll answer this, but clear on his mission. And so the question then becomes, uh, what did he come to do then, if not liberate physically and the answer is some of you are probably expecting paul or sorry paul peter uh kind of prayed this earlier he came to liberate on a spiritual level very important to see this biblically and i i was talking to someone after first service um and we were just saying how sometimes that's kind of an instinctual thing for christians to see that progression that that connection and especially if we don't face a lot of physical oppression uh, or a lot of suffering in life, just to see that there's something more grandiose, more all-encompassing, more universal happening here, and, that in, and, and that's for all human beings, which is oppression to sin and oppression to death. And, uh, but that, in fact, is why, why, he, why he came. In fact, the song, going to the song for a second, the song gets at this too. The song says earlier, long lay the world 
in sin and error pining, which qualifies the phrase, chain shall he break, right? Right in the song. It qualifies that phrase. It doesn't say, long lay the world in jails and prisons pining, right? But long lay the world in sin, in spiritual error, pining. So when chains are talked about being broken, it kind of alludes back to this and points to it. It also says in context, chains shall he break because the slave is our brother. Or this is kind of how he will do it, which I think is a nod to Hebrews 2, 14 to 17. Let me read this and we'll look at a couple of things, especially the highlighted here. It says this, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, we're human, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So this passage, this New Testament passage, which is written to, the, to edify and encourage the church about really what the gospel is, what Jesus came to do, talks about slavery in a certain way. Right? It talks about on spiritual levels. How, so we could ask, how did he liberate? One, by becoming like us. That's kind of the Christmas element, right, to this. He became like us. He became like his brothers, or he became flesh and blood which is amazing. This is the incarnation, we call it, or when God became a human being and was born into the world through Mary. He had to become like us so that he could die for us. He had to become like us so that he could advocate for us. He had to become like us so that his death would mean, it wouldn't just be this glorious event, it would be, it would, it would, it would mean something for sinners, mean something for human beings who are just like Jesus, just like the Son of God, except that he was sinless and we have sinned. So he became like us, but then he died for us as well. He, he died for the sins of the people to bring us to God, as it says here, a high priest. Priests had that duty of inter, uh, kind of intercessing people, sinners, and God through worship in the Old Testament times. And with the New Testament, Jesus kind of ends that system by being the final version, the one that actually worked, the one that actually got us to God, actually atoned, actually intercessed on the highest, most perfect level because there was no more intercession that was needed. It actually worked, so it was done. Once for all, Hebrews 9 says, he died for the sins of the many. Once for all, because it was actually effective. The perfect human who was also God dying for humans. Uh, God was just in that and also showing us mercy by giving us a way of escape from our own wrongdoings. And then it says here too, by destroying the, the devil, uh, I think it's 1 John 3.16, I think, but don't quote me on that. I think it's that reference where it says, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, so it fits here as well. Actually, and Jesus says too, he, he hits on this when in John 8, he's speaking to the Pharisees or these, these Jews, these religious, religious rulers, and, and I think a crowd as well. But he talks about slavery. He says in spiritual terms, all who commit a sin are a slave to that sin. Which we just talked about how O Holy Night kind of qualifies itself by saying long lay the world and sin and error pining and then talks about chains breaking. This verse qualifies Luke 4. When, when, when Jesus talks about liberation, it's unclear what that actually means. Later he talks about what is the actual prison that people are in and the true oppression people face. 
And some of you might know this context. It's interesting. When Jesus teaches this, this is a kind of a crux moment for Jesus' ministry because at this point, people start to kind of set out to kill him. And there are other reasons for this too. There's some stuff with the Sabbath that, that to them is a bit suspect and he calls himself God. There's that one, kind of a big one. Blasphemy. And so they want to set out to kill him. But there's also these, these kind of things too where Jesus is talking about his true mission and, and calling people out. And it's right at this moment where some people just flat out don't believe that. They don't believe their true problem is their sin. And they leave him. They stop listening. They go the other way. And some do. And they follow him all the way to Jerusalem to the cross where they see the fulfillment of what this is getting at. The true liberation that Isaiah 62 was pointing at and that Jesus was getting at himself when he read it in Luke 4 to begin his ministry in Nazareth. It's important to note, too, I think, to allude back to Hebrews 2, which I, I won't flip back to, but to allude back to what we just read in Hebrews 2, that th- these post-resurrection New Testament letters that fill much of our New Testament, you know, to note how they're written and, and to note what they contain, what they focus on. In other words, a- after Jesus ascends and, and the church is born, the church just doesn't storm prisons to release prisoners physically. You just don't see that happening. Nor do they overthrow unjust, oppressive governments. They don't even talk about it. There's no question. There's no kind of counsel in, in the book of Acts or the early church where, okay, what is exactly you're supposed to be doing now? It was very clear what the prison was. And the prison was sin, death, and, and, and slavery underneath both of them and demonic oppression and distance from God in our own hard hearts. And that's what they do. These letters are full of things like Hebrews 2. They the church starts to preach about a gospel, a Christ who liberates them on, on spiritual levels. And so then when we sing then, in his name all oppressions uh, will cease and, and chains shall he break. When we sing these words, you know, he, he really has done that perfectly for us. And this is why, maybe you haven't connected these dots ever before in your life, or, or maybe you have, but this is why a song like that is pretty powerful. I've had like a dozen people tell me, this is my favorite Oh Holy Night, my favorite Christmas song, powerful song. And, and sometimes it's powerful, we don't know why. Uh, but this is why. Christ really has done this for us. We really are enchained, and in Christ we really aren't anymore. This is true right now spiritually in this room. As we afresh hear the gospel, or for some of you maybe the first time you're hearing this, Jesus died for us to set us free from a much darker prison than any prison in this earth physically a much more eternal one, a much more hopeless one. He really has done it. And so we can actually sing these words. He's done it for all of us, people under healthy and unhealthy systems of government. It doesn't matter. Because the point is, spiritually, we're all under an unhealthy system of government. And that that government is sin. So whether we are physically or not is not really the point. This is why the church didn't try to overthrow Rome in the first century. They actually, they pray for the emperor. And after Rome falls, the church is still steamrolling along. It doesn't matter who's in control. And today, up to today, all kinds of systems and versions of government that the church is thriving under because of this simple message that we all are under oppression and and Christ can release. And so so he's done it for all types government-wise. He's also done all of this for prisoners and free people alike. And some of you may have seen this before firsthand. Some people in our church do prison ministry, or you know someone who does. And you know Christians who are actually in prison physically right now. And so, um, but even if you don't, you might have heard of stuff like this. You know, and, and I'll back up and just say, this is why we say, 
a Christian in prison is actually, in a very real sense, more free than a non-Christian who's not in prison. That really is true. Uh, and it doesn't really matter whether they're in prison or not. Point is, are, are you in spiritual prison? And some people still are, and Christians aren't anymore. And so there's actually a degree of happiness there. This is why, you know, if, if you've known someone, uh, let's say, kind of widen out here with, uh, with cancer, dying of cancer, or uh, someone who actually is in prison, or some, someone, someone facing just terrible life circumstances right now, and they're a Christian, it can explain why a lot of times they're happier than you. They're more at peace. They're free. They're actually free in here. And when you actually are free from your sin, you're free to be with God again. You're free to connect. You're free to get back to the Garden of Eden. And it's all based on him, not on you. It's not a journey that you take. It's, it's a journey God took to us all the way to the cross to die for us. He loved us that much. That's true freedom. It's also why we can sing this, uh, guards us from all danger. You know, we can sing this if we know the gospel. Even as we experience physical dangers and sufferings, even as some might say to us as we suffer, God has forsaken you because you suffer. God has, has left you because you experience oppression. Even as people say that, we can sing this because we know he truly has, in a very real spiritual sense, guarded us from all dangers out there. Sin and death and demonic oppression and our propensity not to worship and our hard-heartedness, those really are our biggest problems. He knows our need, the song says. That's why I came to address this. It's, you know, we can flip that really easy. We can be more concerned about the scratch on our index finger than the cancer eating our bones. And, G and that's what happened a lot in Jesus' ministry. People are more concerned about the scratch. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to deal with the scratch. Stop it. It's not why I came. I know your need. I know it way better than you do. And I'll, I'll just say that. God knows your need better than you. He knows it better than me. Do you believe that? Do you think you know your need better than God does? Does this book inform you on what your need is? No matter if you feel like it, like it's true or not, if you, if you feel like you agree, is this informing what your need is? Like we're doing today. Like how Jesus fulfilled Luke 4. What he did and did not do in, in his ministry. But we can sing this because we know we're loved. And I think you could argue that that is true freedom. When you know you're loved. And you are because of what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. You are. You and I are loved deeply by God. So because we can experience that love and forgiveness, we know we're fought for by God and truly freed and empowered, you know, we can, we can sing these things. Um, I want to mention kind of as an aside, if you want to look at Psalm 25 sometimes, we preached on this back in January too, so the sermon's online too if you want to look at that uh, as well. But or any of David's psalms that talk about this, David was a master at seeing this physical and spiritual, you know, kind of, tennis match or this kind of this yo-yo uh, thing between them um, and how the physical pointed to the to the to the spiritual in psalm 25 there's this point and this happens in some of his psalms where he's literally surrounded by physical armies of of enemies and you know if you know his story he's chased by saul the king for you know a good chunk of his life and he's almost killed and there's a lot of people his own family rejects him absalom and his, his own son stage a coup against him he writes psalms in light of all this, and you know what he prays a lot? 
is not stop the physical oppression, but God, forgive me my sin. It's kind of like someone in, in the throes of an intense migraine saying, God, forgive me my sin. This migraine's reminding me of how far I am from you and how corrupt I am on the inside and how death awaits. It's exactly like that. And so then if you know that, like David, and like this song, and I think in the spirit of what the gospel truly is, even as we face dangers and oppressions and sufferings, we feel enchained physically, we're not. We're actually not. We know that he guards us from all danger, and we know that, um, that we really do have a true freedom in a very real spiritual sense that can never be taken away. Some uh, ramifications here, too, for, for life and ministry. Uh, just, uh, I just want to go here before uh, we, we start to wrap up. But I think there's a, a lot of ministry applications to this. And we think of our life, um, you know, theologians call it Christian praxis or just what practice, kind of practicing your faith looks like on a, uh, on a daily basis. You know, if we, if we ask, I know it's kind of a dated question now, but the what would Jesus do? Anybody? Somebody? Yeah. Know what that even is anymore. But, uh, Used to be bracelets, uh, that thing, but based off of Charles Sheldon's book, which I'm forgetting the title already. What was the title of that book? Someone know? Blanking on that book. Anyway, Charles Sheldon, In His Steps, thank you, yeah. In His Steps, actually a really good book. It's fiction, though, but just a story about, yeah, anyway, it's hard to summarize. A lot of issues with it, too, but it's, it's, it's well, well written. Um, but if we ask that question, with everything we talked about just now in mind, what do we get? What did Jesus do? Well, it says in Luke 4, he proclaimed freedom, but didn't always enact it for prisoners. But he proclaimed it. He proclaimed the fact that in him there actually is liberation from sin. He did actually address oppression, right? So Luke 4 kind of helps and talks about proclamation. Jesus was a preacher. He was a teacher. He was very word-centered. And when I say all this, when we kind of go here for a second, guys, do, do not hear that this is at the expense of or against physical acts of ministry. It's not. It's just showing where they come from and in what proper place they kind of lay and sit underneath the greater work of spiritual deliverance. So it's, it is kind of both and, but, but nothing's greater than the work of spiritual liberation. So Jesus proclaimed. He proclaimed freedom. And I think this is actually why, too, the second question this helps us uh, understand how word and deed-based ministries uh, relate. How do word and deed-based ministries um, relate? Or I could say, you know, th this helps inform why exactly we, you know, we'll speak for Hiawatha, why at Hiawatha Church, whether it's a church-wide thing or individuals that represent Hiawatha, engage in social justice of various kinds in our city and our culture and in the world. So we say here that we, we do them, motive's very important for us. I think it is for, the, for God, and the Bible speaks to this. Motive's important. So we do those things, not as though they were a WWJD thing, but as something that physically demonstrates his spiritual kingdom and his spiritual nature to his liberation. Remember, this is a very important to get if you're at all just interested in Christianity or trying to understand to read the Bible the right way or just trying to work out your faith as a believer. God loves symbolism. If this here, this meal isn't symbolism, I don't know what is. It's, it's one of the core things Jesus says you need to do as a Christian. Take communion. Remember me. Eat bread, drink wine, and remember that's my blood and body, which is true nourishment. At the core of what the gospel is, 
is, is symbolism. So, so physical things then, uh, in an ongoing sense, this is actually one way to understand the whole Bible, is the Old Testament's kind of one big fat symbol uh, to the New Testament, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, but is we, we can ask this on a, on, a, on a ministry basis. How do physical deeds of justice point to spiritual acts of justice that Christ already, in a final sense, accomplished for us? So that's what we do. Uh, and this is, this is radical. We've got to think about these things. I mean, if we ask what would Jesus do, um, you know, we categorize these things. I mean, even things today that are very important, I think, should be, like immigration ministry and sex trafficking ministry and helping the poor in our church and, and outside. Uh, maybe some of you help the elderly and sick on your blocks shovel snow. I know our um, maintenance guy, David, here, some of you guys know David. He actually uses his, his snowblower to plow out people all around the area here. Just as kind of expression of who we see God to be, uh, God's grace, how God served us on the cross. And so he'll do that. Um, some of you may have done that this past, this past Sunday we got um, as well. Giving money to food shelves or mentoring at-risk kids. So we list out things like that. Here's kind of the kicker. Jesus never really did stuff like that. You know? I mean, he kind of, you could argue there's a principle there. He kind of talked to some of these things, but he didn't actually. If the question is, what would Jesus do? It's like, well, you know, don't presuppose things. (laughs) Go and actually read. What did he actually do? If you want to kind of percentage out his time, what did he spend the majority of his time doing? What did he primarily talk about? How did he primarily move towards and de-oppress and, um, and liberate, liberate people. You know, I, I think if, uh, actually, if Jesus were here today, it's always one of those, I always hate that question, but then, or that thing, but then I'm here, I am saying it, so I'm part of the problem. Uh, but, but if, uh, well, he is here today, right? He's, he's alive in the church, and so, j- just to be clear, but it's, it's one of those questions of, you know, trying to read things in sometimes with the Gospels, but whatever. But I'm going to say it anyway. If he was here, I, I think he would offend conservatives and liberals alike by how unpolitical he was. I mean, there's no way he would join the picketing lines with the anti-Trump protesters. Not a chance. And there's no way he'd be pro-Trump. So he'd offend both sides. Right? He would subvert the entire movement by talking about himself as the way to God. That's what he did in Roman-occupied first-century Palestine. Why wouldn't he do it again? You know, if we think that Jesus came to kind of, you know, kind of pet our little cats, our little petty agendas, you know, um, and, and say, oh, that's great. You know, I'm going to get behind your, your little agendas here. We don't know what we need. We don't know what this world needs. Not without this book telling us. You know, we think we do, but we have no idea. We have no idea. I don't. You know, and, and part of my story is, um, I told some of you guys this, but thinking that Jesus did a lot of things that he actually didn't do, and good things, but I thought, oh, Jesus, I, I thought I heard he did that once, and I'm reading the Gospels, like, he never did it, you know? So maybe that's a big or a small thing in terms of ramifications theologically, but for you, but again, go to the book. What does God want us to know about his son? What's most important? What's, you know, what is um, secondary? Sometimes, you know, the, the kind of Messiah that we want and the kind of Messiah he actually is uh, sometimes differs. You know, and so, so again, it's a political thing. It's also, actually, too, this is a, maybe even more of a hard thing to hear. It, it's also, I think, he would shock us today if he were here by how unsocial justice he would be. For the sake of talking about himself. Christ was all about talking about himself 
as the solution. It's not over there. It's not doing anything. It's me who exists. So talking about how he is the son of God, how he is the way to him, how, in fact, uh, he has come to forgive sins. And so, again, what kind of Messiah that we want sometimes, sometimes it jives, sometimes it doesn't jive with who he, he actually is. Jesus, Jesus said, this, is, this falls in the category of, Jesus, what were you thinking? There's a couple of those, um, maybe more, in the Gospels, but it's so helpful. It, he said before his death, uh, at the, I believe it's kind of post-Last uh, Supper, um, in, in context, a couple of the Gospels have it, but he, remember he's dining, and then there's that moment where Ma- Mary Magdalene pours out the oil and cries, uses her tears and her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. You guys remember this, and there's oil involved, and, and it says there, Jesus says, She's doing a beautiful thing because she's preparing my body for burial ahead of time. So it's actually about his death. So his impending, atoning death for sin. And so it actually says, too, that whenever the gospel's preached, what she does will be said in memory of, of, this, of this whole thing. You know, it's going to associate with gospel proclamation, and that is written down in the Bible, right? So prophecy fulfilled. Um, but do you remember what the disciples say when that oil is being poured out? The concern they have? They raise question, right? This very expensive oil. Uh, it was like people pouring out thousands of dollars today. Like if it, thousands of dollars in liquid form being poured out. Like, and the disciples are thinking, this is, this is one of those, the disciples got it right this time, right, Jesus? Like this is the moment they actually, they never get it right, but they got it right, right? Where they say, uh, what did, what, what, stop her. We could sell the oil and give the money to the poor. What does Jesus say? Leave her alone. Leave her alone. What she's doing is a beautiful thing because she's preparing my body for burial. Then he says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Do you know that your Savior said this? See what he's doing? How How he's prioritizing ministry to the poor is not as important as his death. It never has been. It's not unimportant, and the church is always engaged with it and always should. But it's not as important as his death. I'm leaving. Giving this this expensive oil to this kind of treatment in this moment is the right thing to do. If, If the center of what Jesus came to do was physically to de oppress people, physically to address poverty, then what in the world is Jesus doing there? He's absolutely off his rocker contradiction you know just uh, this moment of where his mind just kind of forgot and he and he went off the path right but he knows exactly what he's doing and he's prioritizing these things this is who jesus is sometimes he bypasses social justice for the sake of focusing on his death and so so when, when we engage then i'll go back to hiawatha and just talk kind of broadly and encourage you guys with this whether you're part of this church or not a Christian perspective, when we engage in physical justice efforts of various kinds, we do so not as though they were the center, but as though they reflected the center. That's different. We want to see women rescued from the sex trade as they hear about how God has rescued them from their sins. That's what Jesus wanted. Do you hear that? We do want these physical demonstrations of oppression to be lifted, but we want it to happen as a reflection of the center, the bullseye, which is 
which is to be released from physical slavery to sin. And when you get both happening, kind of in junction, this is a beautiful picture of this. And, and this is why Christians kind of want to do this sometimes because they, they love this so much. They love the center so much that they want to show it off physically with different forms of justice ministries in their lives, in their church's neighborhood, and beyond. Whether they fund it, volunteer with it, talk about it. This is the proper motive. And so, you know, what, what would Jesus do? Is that the right question? I, I don't think so. I think the, ra- the, the better one is, what has Jesus done? He's died for you. You are, in every sense of, the most fullest sense, let's put it that way, the fullest sense of the word, free. Free. Not based on how free you feel, but how free you are in God's eyes. He has died for you. He said it's finished. He's not expecting anything of you except just faith and trust. You know, so or maybe the, another question would be this one, the, the H-C-I-T-G-W-M-A, which is how can I embody the gospel with my actions question. That, that's the better biblical question, I think. This is how the New Testament is written. This is how Jesus operates. He is very physically concerned with physical needs, but he does it to show off spiritual ones came to die if, if he just came to take care of the poor why did he have to be god just be a man right we, we engage with ministries like arrive and tapestry not because jesus told us to but because god loves those people and we've been saved from our sins and all of a sudden we care more because we look at those people who are under oppression physically and we see a, an image of ourselves. We're at risk spiritually. We've been sold into slavery, according to Jesus, but bought back with his blood. We're immigrants spiritually, not at home, lost, confused, scared. And we've been rescued. This is why it can become hard but instinctual for many Christians to do it with the right motive is, they're not caring for immigrants because they think it's the main thing they should be doing today. It's not. It's clearly not. Jesus never did it. What's the center? A man on a bloody cross 2,000 years ago. If we see that and believe that, know that that's for me. That's the love of God. Know that he knows our need. We'll want to reflect that gospel to immigrants. We'll want to reflect that gospel to the oppressed in our church and the poor. We'll want to share our our money. It's not ours. God's given money to us, spiritually speaking. Is he's made us wealthy in his righteousness, wealthy in the hope of eternal life. So why wouldn't we give some money to, to this? So that, that's where the right motive goes. If we flip it, we've done a great injustice, a great injustice to Christianity. If we make the center physical deeds of lifting oppression, we've got a huge problem with our Bibles. Jesus never did that. Huge problem with Luke 4. Huge problem with why he didn't take people out of prison. Why didn't he save John the Baptist, who was there as an innocent man, his ministry friend? Or did he release him from prison? Maybe he did. By sending word to him that I am, in fact, the Christ. I am him. Be free in that as tomorrow, you're, you're, as the knife goes down on your neck tomorrow. Be free knowing you are more free than the freest of people doing that to you right now, physically speaking. You're free from your sins. 
you are free from the wrath of God. You're free from the expectation of hell. You're free from insecurity and being unloved and, and your propensity to worship yourself. You're free. And so, so why was it a holy night? Why was it a thrill of hope, according to the song? The, the answer is because he was born to do this. He was born to die. He was born to liberate us from our sins. You know, we, we say a lot here, oh, this will come up next week too at Christmas, but um, this is from someone else, and I forget his name, so I can't quote him, but um, it's not for me. When you, hit, when you take one look at the manger, take ten looks at the cross. Take one look at the manger, good. Take ten at the cross because the cross is better than the manger. Without, without the cross, the manger means nothing. It's actually bad news. It means God is here on earth and you're still in your sins. Bad news. Bad news. Run for your life. But if God came born in a manger, in a humble circumstance, if he came to do this, to sort of lay aside his rights, to condescend himself, to not take up his full power, but die for us among criminals, criminals like us spiritually, then it's good news. This is the end game. This is why he came. This is why it's a thrill of hope, why that first Christmas was a holy night. He knew our need, and so he came to capitalize. He gave us God's forgiveness, and it's by grace we're saved. It's, it's not law, because his law is love. It's gospel. His gospel is peace. Remember the angel uh, Gabriel at his birth says, a savior is born, not a physical liberator is born, good news, or great news for all people, a teacher is born, you know, or, or good news for all people, behold, a lawyer, you know, or something, it's like, right, there's no, it's not even close, it's, it's good news because a savior is announced. It's just not a holy night if a teacher is born, that's been that's happened a thousand times in history. And they always disappoint. But what about the Son of God being born into the world to save us? What about a Savior? One time. A perfect one, one time. It's a holy set-apart night because of that. Nor is it a comfort if another lawyer is born. I mean, there, there, there's no thrill of hope there. But when a sin atoner is, when we realize he has come for us, and that's, that's what you look we look out here, we look at the manger, and we see God has come to us. Like when he promised that over and over again in the Old Testament, I'm coming, the first glimpse of that is kind of at least the, the ultimate kind of first glimpse of the gospel is when he's, when he's born, when he became a human being. We look at that and see he has come for us. It's romance language, really. It's like a husband coming to his wife's rescue when she's under a threat of another man's ill intent. That's, that's, what, that's what it is. God is the ultimate husband coming to rescue his, his wife, uh, his bride. The church is the bride of Christ, and he has uh, romantic intentions, spiritually speaking. He has um, loving intentions. It's the greatest story of all time. When we, when we look at that, we personalize it spiritually and say, yeah, it's come for us. We can sing a holy night like it means something. We can look at the scriptures and say, man, because, because that's the issue. When we, again, 
we talked about this, but when, when we wrongly centralize physical deliverance from oppression, what, what we do when we do that is, is we put the, the impetus for Christian ministry in life out there, or the problems out there, right? If the main thing it came to do is to deal with physical oppression, then from our vantage point, then God was born, or Jesus was born of the world, and he, and he told us some things to do to fix evil out there. It takes the, the focus off of here, that's the problem, this is our biggest problem in the world, and it puts, us, it puts it out there. And it takes the focus off of him. It's just about doing something. That's the problem. And that is a huge joyless issue in Christianity today. Um, there's no joy in that. It's not true. That's why it's no joy in it. It's not from God. It's a huge joyless issue that, that I think Christmas speaks to. We understand Christmas, uh, you know, we need rescuing. Or w- this is what we need. We need rescuing. Emphasize different things there. We need the rescuing. And others do too, for sure. It's a part of Christian life and ministry, right? But it starts right here. And, and Christmas is about right here. It's about God coming to fix this. You know, and, and we need to do, this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is about we got to do away with that, that damnable Santa theology that's just out there that, you know, a lot, most don't actually believe, of course, but um, in the idea behind it, but a lot of do religiously. Christmas is not about being good for rewards. If, if Santa was like Jesus, Santa would give gifts to really, really bad, undeserving people and would win them over with his kindness. But he's not like that. He's just this kind of Honestly, he's kind of hellish guy in a red suit. You know, he's like, oh my gosh, he thinks he knew what I'm sleeping and he's looking at all the bad stuff I do and there's no way I'm saved. You know, it's like, it's the worst thing ever. So, you know, cozy up to that one on Christmas Eve. But um, Jesus says in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If you believe in him, this is how it pre- this preaches, the, the song, we'll sing it again. That's how it preaches to us. If you believe in Jesus, you actually are free. This is Jesus speaking. Do you believe he's, tr- do you believe he's right? I don't care where you are spiritually today. Just throw that out the window for a second. Hear this with fresh ears, fresh eyes. Do you believe you're actually free from all of your sins, all the things done to you, all the things you've done, all the wicked intentions, the bad motives, all, all of your disbeliefs and doubts, your propensities to wander? That he's bled for that and died for that, and you're actually fully free. Never to go back to that prison because of what he's done. Like, if you actually believe that, you know, we can sing O Holy Night and weep, right? We can sing O Holy Night and fall on our, actually fall on our knees and actually, like, this is, this is a holy night. This is set apart. It's sanctified. It's special. If it didn't happen, I'm toast. Absolutely toast. But it happened because it happened for this purpose. So that, that's the message of O Holy Night. That's the message of Luke 4. And our response is simply fall on our knees, like the song says. It, it's, our response is to worship because he's done everything. Right? That's why all songs are, are, should be for that purpose. It's good news, and so with good news comes joy and thanksgiving, Right? And happiness. And so, because of all of this, because God came to liberate the sinner, 
and to make his enemies his friends. Because the, the, the slave is our brother, Jesus became enslaved for us on the cross. He bore separation from his father. I was, uh, Aletha was sharing this with me uh, the, uh, the other day. Uh, some of this is her thoughts, but, um, you know, God, is, God has existed in triune form for, forever in, in perfect relationship with himself and friendship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the cross, he took a knife and cut himself right down the middle and separated himself from himself for you. God existed in triune form. And on that cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? There is separation so that you can be brought in because you are separated. See what he did? That's never happened. Eternity passed. Never will again. This is what Christmas is so beautiful. God became kind of almost not God for a minute. He, he tore his character. He split himself. In his skin, he split himself on the cross. And relationally, with, relationally within himself, he split himself. Because that's where we are in our sin. That's the biggest need. And Christ took it on by becoming rejected from the Father on the cross. So that we don't have to have that expectation of that happening forever. This is amazing love, you guys. Has anyone ever done that for you before? Ever in your life? This is what God has done for you. He's done that kind of loving action. He's done that kind of, that kind of redemption, that kind of deliverance. He's done it for you and me. This actually is true. And if we believe the gospel today, we can have that inner sense of freedom and, and trust and joy and hope in that. So let me pray for us. We'll sing a couple of songs here to close, including O Holy Night. God, thanks uh, for today, for uh, gathering us here, and for the beautiful, freezing, but beautiful weather, and for your creation that, um, and especially the new creation that we have in your son, this newness and, um, and a new life, God. Uh, thank you for your grace that um, you came to show grace. You came to free people based on your effort, not ours. So it's not about morality here, but it's about the grace of God because your law is just love. It's the love of God. And um, expressing that love to other, other believers, especially uh, the, brother, the brethren, the sistren, but, um, but also your gospel is that, is that peace for the soul. So thank you that we have that today in Christ, this Christmas season, Father, and beyond. We, we ask just for a deep-seated, really understanding what Jesus came for and what he didn't come for. That might be hard to hear or paradigm-shifting, um, but it's for your glory and our joy. And there are truths and there are lies, and we might be listening to lies. So um, God, thank you for setting the prisoners free. That's us. Uh, we are prisoners, we are ex-cons, uh, and you have set us free. And um, so we thank you that it's all about you then, not about us being good. It can't be, we're prisoners. Uh, it's about you being kind to prisoners. And uh, like the guy on the cross, you died much too. Pray all this, God, in Christ's name. Amen.